This podcast may include adult content. Bound Off is an independent, nonprofit audio magazine committed to paying authors for their work. To join us in our mission of broadcasting great stories to a worldwide audience, please consider dropping us a dollar or two at boundoff.com slash donate. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories, The Stars of Track and Field by Jane Flett and Cataclysm by Linda Boroff. The Stars of Track and Field Written and read by Jane Flett Listening time, 11 minutes, 21 seconds The Stars of Track and Field Deborah was forever the one left on the bleachers at the end of the day. When all the quarterbacks had gone home, when the cheerleaders had folded their skirts back down, swung their dimpled knees over the car door, away, she unlatched the toilet door and padded back to her seat. This was the time of day she liked best. The hour when all the screams of encouragement had tamped down, and all that was left was settling dust the tang of burnt onions hanging low in the air. The dozy, cricketed hour, after the adrenaline had dispersed, the hour Deborah spent curled close on a plastic chair, rubbing a swatch of terrycloth absent-mindedly on her bottom lip, thinking about what she was going to do with herself. Summer seemed to be never-ending. The other girls turned caramel in halter tops, painted their toenails bubblegum, drank elaborate soda fountain concoctions from twirly straws. The boys affected a healthy swagger, yanked their sun-bleached t-shirts from their torsos and jumped in the lake. It felt sometimes like the rest of the world was shot in oversaturation, granted colours that shook and throbbed in the sun. Deborah herself felt faded. Amidst the Lomo hues, she was sepia. She sighed and slurped the dregs of Pepsi from the oversized cup. With the right ears, it sounded almost like the revving of a motorcycle. Almost. There's a point in the life of every square peg girl in a small town hall where a baton comes along outstretched, a point to grab and run or fumble and miss the trick to limp home to the heckles from the bleachers. Deborah knew this. She had read the paperbacks that swore it was true. She'd spent plenty hours crouched on her bedroom floor with a cracked needle and a black plastic disc full of promises. If she could keep alert, trouble was bound to screech up eventually. Trouble in a mint-green convertible. Trouble with a lazy, lopsided smile and a wicker basket of white rum and sherbet fountains and neon-popping candy for sustenance. Except, except, except she had been waiting a long time and sometimes she wondered if just maybe she had missed the trick or maybe the trick had missed her or maybe she had to be her own magician and pull the scars from the hat herself. It was all very well biting the skin from the corners of her thumbnails and daydreaming about a cross-country scrawl to the sea, about clifftops and skyscrapers and that thumbed hitch to Mexico with the peyote dream man. But it didn't seem to be getting very, very far. 
Deborah was beginning to think that perhaps trouble wasn't going to turn round her corner, and perhaps she should whittle her own baton. Perhaps the hour had struck to hitch her own pony and set off at a trot. Of course, Deborah didn't have a pony, and didn't have a motorbike, and didn't know a single cross-eyed outlaw who drove faster on the bends. She did have a cherry-red pushbike with a basket made from an old freezer drawer, but the brakes were creaky and worn, and she wasn't sure it would get her as far as she needed to go. She did have a tendency to sit doe-eyed at the bus station, but she didn't have a part-time job, and she was slightly afraid of the old man with the wiry hair and wily eyes who sat motionless in the ticket booth. Deborah knew if she couldn't find the courage to step up to the ticket booth, then she probably couldn't find the courage to run at all. But she kept that thought in the bottom drawer, beneath the newspaper cuttings and timetables, where it could stay quiet. She also had a pair of rubber-soled running shoes that pelted her around the track and catapulted her into the long jump pit after everyone else had gone home. Deborah was in training for the grandest prize of all. She was going to teach herself to run fast enough on fleeted foot and then she was going to escape. She placed a blown glass egg timer on the starting block tensed her calves and set to sprint at the trickle of the sand. Round and round and round, hair whipping in the wind, past the hot dog stand and the toilet block and the rows of seats, swirling in a vortex of her own making. She ran until the sand was over, then she tucked the timer in her rucksack, ducked under the turnstiles and made her way home. If we wanted to, now... We could pick out the moment that spurred Deborah to leave. We could look back at the events of her life strung like brightly coloured beads on a line of string. We could flick them across like an abacus and say, this, here, this one was the kicker. However, we live our lives in the other direction and racing forward, things are never so clearly defined. In the blur of momentum, everything seeps into each other and right then Deborah didn't know if it was her mother's sigh at the dinner table, or the faucet in the bathroom that dripped morning after morning, or the photograph in that magazine of Patagonia, all hibiscus and butterflies, that set the switch to trip and her legs to stampede. In any case, if it wasn't one, it would have been another. In any case. So... Deborah is walking to the sports ground in a loose-hipped gander. Deborah is crossing the road under the pylons, and then somewhere in her brain there is a bzzzt, like a blue bottle hitting an overhead power cable, and Deborah begins to run. All the way down the main street in town, past the traffic lights, past Al's tool hire, past the gaggle of schoolchildren comparing pet lunches in Tupperware. Onwards, thighs pumping, past the roundabout and down the tarmac, under a beating sun that makes the sky wobble. In her mind, she isn't going anywhere. She has no internal compass, no plans, she is just pointed forward and moving, imagining the road before her as the ruddy track, composing visions of white lines to keep her in lane. She runs, 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 until the road becomes a dusty path and her heels kick up clouds like a cartoon. 
She is the f- she is faster than the speed of light, and shooting stars throb her vision. She can no longer feel her legs or her arms or anything but the whir of wind in her face. And then finally, the sand ticks out and she stops. Deborah has reached the river. The blood in her ears is pounding, firing out a tom-tom beat. She rests her hands on her knees and breathes deep, juddering lungfuls, bent double, hair sticking to her forehead in rivulets of sweat. Gradually, her tempo calms. The drums fade to a patter and she sits down on a rock. The water flows. Deborah can't tell where she has ended up. Possibly she has covered miles, great swathes of continent. Perhaps she could follow this river down some twists and turns and reach the sea. There could be anything waiting for her there. A pirate ship of plunder that would take her captive and bound to the next place. Her dress clings to her where the sweat runs, the small of her back, the crease between her breasts, the folds at the back of her knees. The fresh adrenaline has worn off. She inhales, exhales, and smells the acrid warmth rising from her body. Her slip peels off with a thwack, and she hooks it on a branch. Deborah slumps naked in the dying beams of the sun, and, toasty and exhausted, she falls asleep. Laser bolts swim in her vision. Clouds part and lightning rains down, and water nymphs blow kisses from painted pouts. She stares into the river, and, like the Red Sea, it parts wide and spreads its thighs. There is a road rising from it, a heady expanse of tarmac, a wink and a promise. The road leads to a city where the skyscrapers rise so high they tickle the heavens. The bodegas stay open all night long and people dance like Salome, while the owls contract and expand. The people are high-hemmed and unconcerned. They don't look with pinched eyes and sitting-room judgment. It is bustling, and she can breathe hard and deep and never taste that stale suburban choke. Deborah unfolds her legs and steps softly to the bank. The water slips open and the mud oozes between her toes. Slimy vines tangle in her calves and she sweeps them free with one hand, sending ripples across the surface of the river. She is following the white line, set dead ahead. The water rises above her knees and she is escaping. It laps at her pubis and envelops her belly and the road whispers, Come on! Come on. A lean-hipped boy in a torn vest offers her a cigarette, and a girl giggles, takes her fingers and feeds her a beer. And there are roadside stalls sticky with the scent of roast pork, and there is an incessant bee emanating from somewhere, not her heart this time, but somewhere else. Her breasts bob in the water, and the current tugs on her hair, sweat and dust swirling down river. Deborah takes a deep breath. 
It whirls down her throat like a wind turbine on a distant hilltop, tickles and teases at her lungs. She trains her eyes to the horizon. She steps forward. The river gulps. Deborah exhales and walks on, onwards and to the next place. Jane Flett is a seamstress of most fetching stories. Listen to her fiction on BBC Radio 4 or buy her poetry book from Dancing Girl Press or come to janeflett.com. Cataclysm, written and read by Linda Boroff. Listening time, 11 minutes, 45 seconds. It was time. Obediently, marketing assembled in front of human resources and counted noses, then filed out through the vast, slick-floored maroon and silver lobby. Job seekers, huddled like troglodytes in cavernous armchairs, glanced up from computer journals as the troop passed. Hasta la vista, called out blonde Annabelle Hopp from the reception desk, waving gaily. Nobody waved back. Silently, marketing crowded through the front door into the parking lot to distribute itself, grunting, squeezing, joints popping among three cars. The dutiful caravan wended a short, cramped distance to downtown, parking on River Street to avoid the noon traffic jam. Then they shuffled, like so many ducklings or kindergartners, Sue thought irritably, behind Al Cook, their director, all the way down Pacific Avenue to the Palomar restaurant. Sue noticed that she was dragging her feet just as she had on field trips back in elementary school, and she felt an insistent, annoying urge to hold Bill Pinckney's hand as he trudged along at her side. A full year after the earthquake, Pacific Avenue still lay strewn about in raw asphalt chunks as if ripped by an angry behemoth, post-Godzilla Santa Cruz. Deep, refuse-littered canyons that were the graves of buildings yawned on either side, Sue felt vaguely ashamed, peeping down into them, their broken rusty girders and moldy blockite foundations helplessly exposed like the underwear of dead old ladies. Overdressed and overemployed, marketing edged self-consciously along cyclone fencing and across broken pavement, past irreverent youth of all styles and commitments, past blousy older shoppers and Gabby Hayes homeless. The sun glared down and obstructed on the ruined street, startlingly hot. The march of the toy soldiers, no, the procession of the damned, who continued bitterly, and guiltily too, because it was really very nice of the company to buy them all Mexican lunch every other Thursday. Just marketing, a chummy little clack, no interlopers from admin or MIS, our tradition Al termed it. Of course, the cold steel of corporate coercion glinted out from the velvet glove dealing enchiladas, and for some, fear was the especial on the menu, since Al often chose this occasion to call someone aside and mention in his offhand way that someone was under evaluation. That gut-piercing, margarita-negating corrida, the guacamole curdling beneath a stinging salsa reflux, the beans hitting the stomach floor like a highlight serve, Poor Mac Morgan had gone positively verde on hearing his summons. Or was it only the restaurant's green-tinted skylight that made them all look as if they were lunching in the gulag? Sue caught her own reflection in one of the few storefront windows left unboarded. 
limp, she thought. Her hair drooped from its center part, too dismayed to curl. The mouth was petulant, impotent. Even her large brown eyes retreated, peering back at her accusingly like those of a war orphan. Mac was history now, Sue thought. No more Gary Larson cartoons on her chair in the mornings. No more Star Trek festival flyers. Morgan's problem was he thought like an engineer, not a marketing pro, had eulogized Al, Mac's unrepentant executioner, punctuating his remark with an analytical pursing of the lips that lifted his jowls a good inch and caused him to resemble something that lurks in a coral reef. Only an hour, Sue told herself. This will soon be over. The hard hats, rulers of the rubble, bestrode their dozers like cowboys, lazy-hipped, their proud torsos gleaming with honest sweat. Beneath them, the marketing group, children yet again, gaped at serrated iron shovels and mighty saurian pincers, groaning and roaring as they gnashed at massive slabs of concrete and masonry. Sue became disoriented, as she always did now when downtown. All illusions demolished forever that afternoon. No stability, no shelter, no safety. Not on this deceptive, faulted earth that could suddenly lurch into animistic life and sway like a hula dancer's hips. Not in the treacherous ocean, either, with its hidden riptide pythons. Not in the universe itself, only a big balloon, after all, heedlessly inflating toward some cosmic pop, or worse, dribbling back over the eons to a flaccid little virtual particle, all grandeur mummified. Certainly not in love. The sudden indoor cool and the remote vaulted ceiling of the Palomar made Sue want to kneel and pray, as she had done once before in Notre Dame, and during the earthquake, too, her atheism expediently discarded in the face of God's indisputable hegemony. Kneeling beside her in the church had been a Sorbonne student nicknamed Dudu. On the wall of his Rue de l'Arc garret had hung a Roy Orbison poster. He had serenaded her in fractured English with running scared scared. Some 15 years later, the earthquake had caught Sue and her ex-husband Todd bickering over the visa bill. He didn't give a damn what her lawyer said. Why should he have to pay for half of her psychotherapy that his own infidelity had made necessary? You punish me by seeing the most expensive shrink in the county. Todd's blue eyes were as cold as Freon. She would not give him the satisfaction of admitting that he had broken her heart. That on learning of his perfidy, she had dashed to the telephone directory and dialed the only therapist whose ad was big enough to read through her tears. And what about these charges for that cozy little hideaway in Calistoga, she counterattacked, waving the bill. You took her to our honeymoon resort? I'm supposed to pay half of that? And suddenly, as if fed up to hear, the earth had shrugged, shuddered with disgust. The house groaned, rocking back and forth. Massive cracks clove the walls. Sue and Todd froze, stupefied. What manner of divine retribution had their squabbling called down? Sue suddenly recalled reading of a woman during World War II, convinced that her own turds were torpedoes sinking Allied ships. Had they been? Desperately, Sue and Todd grabbed for each other, swaying, praying aloud as the house danced like a Max Fleischer cartoon. With a cry, they toppled together and rolled across the floor, sheltering one another's heads. So must Sodom have collapsed amid wails of terror and remorse. I didn't mean it, Sue prayed desperately. That seventh grade cussing contest, that high school debate, resolved, God is dead. And then it was over. The earth convulsed one last time and lay still as if spent, handing them back their lives. A miracle. Sue and Todd wept with relief. 
bursting with gratitude, they apologized, gushed concessions, how selfish they had been, how misguided. Everything was so clear now. Life was too precious, too uncertain to squander in trivial conflict. Yes, yes, cherish the moment, the priceless gift. Chastened and a little smug, they swept up glass, nipping from a bottle of brandy, tisking in sympathy as news reports poured from the radio. But late that night, Todd had left again after all, dressed silently in the dark and let himself out. Sue had awakened alone at 5 a.m. to the wail of sirens, sitting glumly amid the aftershocks, indifferent to doom. Let it all end in rubble, then. Let the whole rotten world come down on her. Hey, Sue, what's your pleasure? Bill nudged her arm. Andale, andale, prompted Al from the head of the table. The chili verde burrito looks good, Sue responded, her appetite gone. To your left, whispered plump Amy Landsman. Don't look now, is the man who broke my old boss Sally's heart. The heartbreaker was battling for control of an elongating cheese string. Manningly elastic, it resisted his efforts, dangling stubbornly from his lips across his fork, stretching toward his tie. He looked up and his eyes met Sue's. She made a scissors motion with her fingers. He grinned and winked. Watch out, said Amy. When the worst has already occurred, answered Sue lightly, one has nothing left to fear, or to put it another way, you can't fall off the floor. I fell off the floor, said Amy. During the earthquake, my house broke into four pieces and I fell off the kitchen floor. Onto what? The kitchen floor, but it was five feet lower. I'm sure there's some fundamental insight to be gained from that. Sue grinned and tossed her hair, a coquette, fearless. So we figured that pricing was the key. Bill hoisted a chip, trembling with salsa. No way, Jose, shouted Al. You're off base as usual. Think about the margins, Sonny. Where have you been for the past six months? Salsa dropped like tears onto Bill's menu. No way, Jose, Al said again, this time to the waiter. I've got the wrong burrito filling, he pouted. Where's the beef? Speaking of the worst, I saw Todd yesterday, said Amy. He pulled a sad face, said he'll always love you. Sue rolled her eyes. A talent for deception. But he had loved her once, hadn't he? Rhapsodizing over her dark eyes, her mouth, the way the stem of her back curved beneath his hands. In bed, their contours had fitted perfectly, notched in all the right places, a solid marital foundation if ever there was one. Yet even then she had been preparing for the cataclysm, not if but when, bolting her love firmly, warily to the unreliable earth, holding herself apart, needing him the more for that. The beige flanks of Sue's burrito split and eroded under her indifferent fork, and trails of green rice and pork spilled out. The meal was ending, she noted with relief, those about her rising with conspicuous grunts and groans of satiety. Sue tossed her napkin gratefully onto the table. I miss Max, she said. Nothing's the same. That's for sure, said Bill. The Mac's working in Sunnyvale now. He hates the commute, but he's holding up. And what else could one wish for, after all, Sue decided, but to hold up? To hold up was enough. It was everything. Like a bad dream, Al Cook materialized at her side, and Bill melted away. Sue said, Al, would you step into the bar with me, please? I'm afraid we're due for a chat. His face was so close that she could easily distinguish the graphite-colored bristles on his jaw, the frijoli smear beside his mouth. His eyes were a colorless glaze. Such must be the last human image afforded a condemned man, a close-up of his own executioner, all details in place for one final, eternal impression. 
Al took Sue's elbow and steered her toward the bar, away from the others. No reliable way to predict. Deep in Sue's molten core, a cauldron of magma heaved and lurched. A plate shifted and suddenly gave way, rupturing swiftly along the fault. Fissures wrenched open like rosy gashes. Her mantle shuddered as seismic waves, amplified by loose upper sediment, made their way toward the unsuspecting crust. Her legs began to tremble. Her head swayed as the inner momentum grew. Tremors reverberated along her skin. Al ordered two coffees from the bartender, and Sue took her seat beside him. In her ears was a roaring and a tinkling not unlike that of breaking glass. Linda Boroff graduated from the University of California. Her short stories have appeared in Epoch, Prism International, and others. Her short story, Lifters, is in development as a TV series. Listener-supported Bound Off is made possible by grants from the Kern Family Endowed Fund. Further support comes from the Google Grants Program. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories. <laughs>